Hi, my name is Jared Rutter, and I'm a professor of biochemistry at, uh, and an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at the University of Utah. And I'm going to tell you today, in the next 30 minutes or so, some of the things that I find most fascinating about the mitochondria. So to give you a little bit of my background and how we became interested in this organelle, I did my PhD in the lab of Dr. Steve McKnight at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. And at the time I joined Steve's lab, he had just recently come back to academia from a biotech company. And as a result of that, the lab was relatively small, and there weren't really ongoing projects. Everything was brand new. And Steve really encouraged us uh, at that time to really focus on doing something brand new, focus on doing something unique, make a discovery that no one else would ever make. That's how we were taught to think about science. And, and, and that's a teaching that has really influenced my career and something that I've always aspired to. This is really difficult. We all like to stay in our comfort zones, and, and this is a really difficult standard to, to hold ourselves to, but I think um, is very important for us as scientists. So after being in Steve's lab, I eventually went to the University of Utah and joined the Department of Biochemistry and was surrounded by a, a bunch of wonderful colleagues, some of which worked on this organelle, the mitochondria. Specifically, uh, Janet Shaw and Dennis Wingy really inspired me with the work that they had done to understand mitochondria and make important discoveries. And I began to be kind of intrigued and thought that my lab should maybe do something to try and understand this organelle better. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really captured my attention um, relating to how uh, Steve taught us to think about science, is the degree to which there were many things about mitochondria that we just didn't understand well about this complex uh, 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 structure in, in cells. So what I'm going to do is tell you about a few features of this organelle that I find really fascinating. And some of the, and I'll try and allude to those uh, uh, points where I think there's really critical um, knowledge about the mitochondria that we don't yet have and, and, and that we need to understand better. And I will also tell you that uh, Jody Nunari gave an excellent talk about mitochondria that's part of the iBiology series that talks about mitochondria primarily from the perspective of evolution and alludes to several features and I definitely encourage you to watch that and I'll, I'll try and cover some of the things that uh, she didn't talk about quite so much. So the five things, the five areas that I will allude to regarding mitochondria are, are shown here. First, about its origin. It's clear, quite clear from, from uh, how we understand mitochondria that they evolved uh, as a result of an aerobic bacterium becoming engulfed in what was the pro proto-eukaryotic cell and essentially became domesticated, domesticated bacteria living in those cells that eventually entered into a symbiotic relationship that was of benefit both to that bacterium and that cell. And those bacterium have evolved and, and adapted and have become today's uh, mitochondria. And when we think about that, that we essentially have a domesticated bacterium living in most of our cells, I think that has big implications for, for how we think about cell biology. And um, I'll allude to that a little bit later, but that, that I think changes in a way the relationship between mitochondria and, and the nucleus compared to other organelles where their origin is, is, 
is quite different. So the structure of mitochondria is one of the most unique features of this organelle. Unlike other most other organelles, those in animal cells in particular, mitochondria has two membrane compart two membrane systems. There is an outer membrane that completely surrounds the mitochondria, and everything is contained within that outer membrane. That outer membrane turns out to be relatively porous to small molecules. This inner membrane, however, and which encapsulates a protein compartment known as the matrix, shown in blue, this inner membrane is thought to be completely sealed and is impermeable to ions except through specific uh, uh, transport processes that are critically important for the function of mitochondria. This inner membrane is highly invaginated and leads to these folded structures depicted here as Christi, which will become important later. But this also, this folding also creates a scenario where the surface area of the inner membrane is quite a bit larger than the surface area of the outer membrane. And again, that becomes important because this inner membrane is the site of much of the important work that is done in mitochondria. And, and the mitochondrial matrix, I just want to point out, is where a lot of the chemistry is done. So the enzymes that we consider to be localized to mitochondria, the vast majority of them are localized to the mitochondrial matrix, which again is completely segregated from the cytosol uh, by virtue of this two-membrane system, the, again the inner membrane being uh, uh, the dominant one for, for conveying the separation. So where do the proteins come from that perform the work in mitochondria? 99% of those proteins, roughly, are synthesized in the cytosol on cytosolic ribosomes and then imported into mitochondria. But interestingly, 1% of the proteins found in mitochondria are actually synthesized there, and they are encoded by the mitochondrial genome. So again, another very unique feature for animal cells of mitochondria is the maintenance of this mitochondrial genome, which is a relic, we, we believe, of the ancestral bacterial genome that was first brought into this proto-eukaryotic cell. This mitochondrial genome only encodes 13 proteins, but those 13 proteins are critically important for the respiration functions of mitochondria. And those 13 proteins, all of them, co-assemble with other nuclear-encoded, cytosolically-synthesized proteins into large protein complexes, which creates very interesting and important challenges of coordination that we'll talk about later. So metabolism. Metabolism is easily the most famous function of mitochondria. That's what we think about, typically, when we think about uh, uh, mitochondrial function. This metabolic function of mitochondria can be uh, broken down into several flavors of function. The most well-known and, 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 and most well-studied, probably, is the catabolic function of mitochondria, the processes by which mitochondria consume the food that we eat and enable the production of ATP. And we're going to go through that in, in a lot of detail. But mitochondria also play very important biosynthetic functions in building the molecules that our, our cells need for duplication and repair. And there are also very important functions of mitochondria in controlling redox balance, which I won't talk about in great detail, but are, are clearly very important. So, 
This system by which mitochondria consume food and make ATP is truly amazing, truly incredibly important, uh, especially in those cells that consume a lot of ATP, like cardiomyocytes, heart muscle cells, and neurons, which have enormous ATP demand. The vast majority of that ATP comes from mitochondria. How does that work? This is just a, a brief summary of that from the perspective of a carbohydrate like glucose. When glucose is brought into the cell, it's converted to pyruvic acid in the cytosol, which generates a little bit of ATP, two molecules of ATP. To fully capture the energy of glucose, however, that pyruvate is taken into the mitochondria. Carbons are extracted and released as CO2. Electrons are extracted and conveyed to the electron transport chain, which enables very efficient ATP production, leading to a much, in an idealized setting, 38 molecules of ATP. That is the way to generate ATP highly efficiently. But as, as I mentioned, in that context, the carbon is lost to CO2. So if that carbon needs to be used to build something like DNA or proteins or lipids, one can't fully oxidize glucose to, carbo to, to CO2. And so that balance between anabolic and catabolic functions of mitochondria is one I'll come back to later, but it appears to be critically important. It's clearly important in normal physiology and appears to be critically important in disease. So this is an overall summary of how this happens. So uh, of how ATP synthesis is managed by the mitochondria. So how does this actually work? In very simplistic terms, one of the key features of this is that the energy of food is used to enable the pumping of protons through this respiratory system, which we'll talk about in much more detail, from the mitochondrial matrix into the Christie space, the intermembrane space between those two membranes. And then as those protons flow back down their gradient, the energy from that is captured to make ATP. And that is the process by which food energy is used to fuel, uh, fuel ATP production. And we'll talk about both the proton pumping and the ATP production aspects of that in a little bit more detail. So again, this is a zoom in of this system. Again, food molecules are used to feed the TCA cycle, the citric acid cycle, or Krebs cycle. The carbon is lost as CO2, but the electrons are extracted and passed to the electron transport chain, which then, in conjunction with pumping, uh, with, with passing electrons, pumps protons from the matrix to the uh, intermembrane space. And then as those protons then flow back down their gradient in an energetically favorable process, that energy is captured very elegantly by this beautiful machine, the ATP synthase, and coupled to the synthesis of ATP. And again, we're going to talk about each of those processes in, in more detail. So unlike combustion or an explosion where the energy from a fuel is lost as heat or light, this process, the mitochondria, capture that energy by virtue of it being conveyed in very small, very discrete steps, not unlike how a turbine, a series of turbines, captures water flowing down a hill through gravity or flowing through a dam and, uh, uh, via gravity. That energy is captured 
and converted into and stored in a way that it can then be used to generate ATP that our cells will use to fuel their pro, their, their, the processes that they need to power. So this is how mitochondria do it, is by capturing that energy in very discrete processes. And it is done primarily through the pumping of protons. So this is a depiction of the electron transport chain. And again, this complex one, or NADH dehydrogenase, captures the electrons that have been held in the NAD cofactor pool, and then conveys those electrons to ubiquinone, and in, and in the process of doing so, pumps protons from the matrix to the intermembrane space. The quinone pool passes those electrons again to complex three, or cytochrome C reductase, which again pumps protons as those electrons are eventually then conveyed to cytochrome C, which again passes its electrons to cytochrome C oxidase, which pumps protons in conjunction with electrons being carried to oxygen and then the, uh, enabling the formation of water. So this process, this series of many, many electron transport reactions is coupled to the pumping of protons. And this depiction is inappropriate in a way because it belies the massive complexity of these complexes. So I just want to focus on complex one. So this is a, a structure of complex one that was solved a few years ago. 44 different proteins are required for the function of this complex, make up this complex, which exists both in the, in the, in the membrane, which is about here, uh, the, the, the membrane piece of complex one, and then this matrix arm uh, of this complex. And these are all required for the conveyance of electrons from NADH through a series of cofactors that sequentially capture those electrons and pass them on down the chain, eventually reaching the quinone, where they are deposited, that then takes them, as I said before, to the, the next complex in, in the chain. And that conveyance of electrons is coupled to the movement of specific helices in this membrane, uh, in this membrane arm that enable the pumping of protons from the matrix to the intermembrane space. How that exactly works, we don't really know. We know some of the features of it. And we're, we're trying, uh, the field is trying very hard to understand this in more detail. But it's a very elegant process by which these two uh, 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 functions of electron uh, passage and proton pumping are coupled through this very complex 44 subunit um, enzyme system. So how does this proton gradient then get used to make ATP through ATP synthase. So I want to show you an animation that I think illustrates this very nicely based on actual structural data of this complex. So the ATP synthase uh, molecule is shown, or, or uh, complex is shown here. It's composed of two different motors, uh, a motor in the matrix and one in the, in the membrane that uses the proton gradient as you see here. High in the IMS, you see low proton availability in the matrix. Those protons flow through this complex, and that flowing is coupled with ATP synthesis. And these two motors, the FO motor that exists in the membrane, captures those electrons and couples 
they're flowing through the, to the rotation of this rotor, and the F1 motor makes ATP. So protons come in through this rear channel, bind to this FO rotor, go all the way around in 360 degrees around this rotor, and then are released through this front channel into the matrix. And that powers the rotation of this FO motor. That rotation is conveyed to the F1 motor through this central stock, which rotates in the middle of this F1 motor and causes sequentially as it goes around conformational changes that convey energy to the production of ATP from ADP and phosphate. And this goes around and around coupled with the pumping of protons, with the, with the flowing of protons from the IMS, from the intermembrane space to the matrix, and coupling that with ATP synthesis. It's a really beautiful uh, uh, motor system to convey the potential energy of the proton gradient to the production of ATP that can be used uh, uh, for uh, energetically demanding processes in the cell. I want to talk a little bit about the anabolic functions of metabolism of the mitochondria as well. So this is a complex slide, and I just want to point out a few things. So again, glucose comes into the cell, is converted to pyruvate in the cytosol. That pyruvate is uh, 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 transported into the mitochondria and enters the TCA cycle. That TCA cycle not only extracts electrons to fuel the electron transport chain, but also provides intermediates like citrate that can then be exported to the cytosol and are critically important for the synthesis of lipids, like fatty acids and cholesterol. So mitochondria actually contribute to the building of, uh, of molecules as well as their destruction, like this in this case with, with lipid synthesis. Oxaloacetate, another TCA cycle intermediate, is also used in the building of amino acids like aspartate, which contribute to nucleotide biosynthesis. So again, very important biosynthetic functions of mitochondria in addition to the catabolic ATP-producing functions that we tend to focus on uh, uh, mostly. Interestingly, many pathways are actually shared between the cytosol and the mitochondria, or mitochondria and another organelle. Um, phospholipid biosynthesis is one example. One example is also shown here, which is particularly interesting, like this SHMT enzyme, which interconverts glycine and serine. There's actually an isoform in the cytosol and an isoform in the mitochondria that do the same reaction. It's interesting to speculate that perhaps that enables the function of this pathway and others like it to exist to be functional in different metabolic states where the cytosol and the mitochondria might be differentially optimized for this chemistry in one condition versus another. Something that we really need to understand better is how the cytosolic and mitochondrial metabolic functions are coordinated. And in addition, one other uh, type of coordination that is clearly important is the coordination between the anabolic functions of mitochondria, as shown here, and the catabolic functions, which we just talked about. Clearly, those are both very important, and the mitochondria conducts all of them. How does it coordinate them, and how does it decide whether it's more important to generate ATP or more important to generate uh, building blocks for cell growth and proliferation and repair? Uh, something that we don't understand very well just yet, but it's something very critical for human normal physiology and for disease. So 
I want to talk about the challenges that arise for protein homeostasis because of the unique structural constraints provided by mitochondria. So this is, again, another depiction of the mitochondrial electron transport chain and the TCA cycle. And I just want to point out again that the electrons are extracted from acetyl-CoA, passed to this system through these very complex um, electron transport chain complexes, and eventually conveying the electrons to oxygen to make water while pumping protons. And as I described, this is critically important to eventually enable ATP synthase to make ATP by using that proton gradient. Beautifully elegant system, fantastically complex. And that complexity uh, brings several challenges that eventually end up being protein homeostasis challenges. So just focusing on the, just the, the protein components of these complexes. So just complex one, for example, as I alluded to, has 44 different subunits, seven of which are encoded by the mitochondrial genome, 37 by the nuclear genome, and these proteins all have to find one another in the right stoichiometries to make an intact complex one. It's impossible for the cell to manage that in complete, uh, with complete control, and the results have to be that too much of one subunit or too little of, or, of another are there, and that leads to a degradation problem where those excess subunits have to be degraded, and this is happening throughout this complex. That's an important problem that the mitochondria have to deal with. In addition to that, all of these complexes also have redox-active cofactors that need to be managed very carefully. And when they're not managed carefully, that leads to the production of reactive oxygen species that create damage to, the mitochond to, to mitochondrial proteins. Again, those proteins that are damaged have to be degraded and, 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 and recognized as being damaged and degraded. And uh, so this is a massive pro protein homeostasis problem. And this is made worse by the fact that this is all happening in a place that is inaccessible to the proteasome, which does most of the protein degradation in the cell. So that creates a challenge for how do proteins, how are proteins recognized and degraded in the mitochondria? And this is one depiction of the, the complexity of systems that do that. This system uh, includes several proteases in the matrix, in the inner membrane, and in the inner membrane space that through mechanisms we mostly don't understand recognize proteins that need to be degraded and degrade them. There are also proteins on the outer membrane that need to be degraded, extracted from the outer membrane, and typically presented to the proteasome for degradation. How are they recognized as being aberrant is still remains to be determined. And interestingly, it's becoming clear that the mitochondria is a common destination for the mislocalization of proteins that should be somewhere else but end up mislocalizing to the mitochondrial outer membrane. How are they then recognized and degraded? It's a very important question that is clearly important for human disease. But we really don't understand it very well. But sometimes even all this complexity of systems trying to maintain mitochondrial quality don't work well enough, and mitochondria need to be degraded. And there's a very interesting uh, process known as mitochondrial autophagy or mitophagy, that manages the degradation of whole organelles. And this is mediated, one part, one uh, uh, pathway toward mitophagy is mediated by this pink Parkinson system, 
which uh, targets mitochondrial for autophagy. Parkin is so named because mutations in the Parkin, the gene encoding Parkin, uh, cause also Parkinson's disease, devastating neurodegenerative disorder. Just emphasizing the importance of mitochondrial quality, both in terms of protein degradation as well as mitochondrial degradation for maintaining the normal function of healthy cells and, and uh, healthy organisms. Finally, I want to just allude to some of the interesting communication that happens from mitochondria uh, out to the rest of the cell, to the nucleus and, and, and the cytosol. There is also, of course, very interesting and important communication happening going into mitochondria. I won't talk much about that. But one of the obvious ways that mitochondria communicate with the rest of the cell is through providing metabolites, as we just talked about. And several of the metabolites that are produced by mitochondria have very important signaling and regulatory roles, like acetyl-CoA, alpha-ketoglutarate, ATP itself. They all play very important roles in controlling cell biology. And that's a, one of the key means whereby mitochondria communicate to the rest of the cell. Another is the redox state of mitochondria. Because of its ability to put electrons into oxygen, this is, provides what is normally a very safe way to dispose of electrons. And when mitochondria don't have, when the cell doesn't have access to oxygen as an electron acceptor through mitochondria, the cell has to adapt and find other ways to, to dispose of those electrons or to not generate as many electrons. This is a very important part of mitochondrial function by controlling redox homeostasis that we don't think about as much but is, is clearly important in several disease settings. We talk about reactive oxygen species typically as being signs of damage when things go wrong. But it's clear that hydrogen peroxide and other oxidants play normal signaling roles. And we're just starting to understand the means whereby that signaling happens. What are the targets of that signaling? And how does it control uh, cell biology? But it's interesting to speculate that that might be a very interesting uh, uh, sentinel of how mitochondrial function is going by virtue of the production of hydrogen peroxide. Calcium uh, signaling is, uh, mitochondria play a very important role in calcium signaling, both by virtue of their storing some calcium, as well as controlling the release of calcium from other sites. And, that, and obviously, calcium signaling is critically important in many excitable cells. Mitochondria directly contact almost every other organelle, and probably we'll come to know that they contact every other membrane system in the cell. And by virtue of those contacts, that enables uh, efficient uh, transport of metabolites between organelles, and it's clear that there is also regulatory information conveyed by those interactions as well. And this is a very active area of research currently. One of, I think, the most interesting features of mitochondria is their connection with the immune system. Again, this harkens back to the, to the history of mitochondria as a, as a bacterium that became engulfed by a eukaryotic cell. It's interesting to know now that many features of the immune system have particular um, relationships with mitochondria. Some systems of the innate immune uh, response actually reside on mitochondria all the time, are centered there. And it's interesting to think about the implications of that given its origin as a bacterium. And there are very interesting 
responses to the exposure of mitochondrial DNA to the cytosol. And again, that's quite interesting given the history of that mitochondrial genome as the descendant of what was once a bacterial genome. And the net effect of this is mitochondrial functions don't just make ATP, they don't just make metabolites, they significantly influence the behaviors that cells make. And those behaviors, when they become aberrant, it's very clear, have profound impacts on disease. And so I think one of the most interesting areas of future research for us is to understand how mitochondria communicate through these and other mechanisms to control the behaviors of cells. And I'll talk in much more detail about that in the second part of this series. So this leads us back to my story of why we became so interested in mitochondria. I think I've told you about all the mysteries that I think are still contained within this organelle. And this was uh, brought home to me quite clearly by the elegant work of Dave Paglarini and Vamsi Mutha when they defined the mitochondrial proteome in humans uh, 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 several years back now. And it became clear that about a third of the proteins found there were completely uncharacterized. For this organelle that's been so well studied, about a third of the, about a third of the proteins found there have no known function. They likely are doing something. And that likeliness that they're doing something is really illustrated by the fact that many of those proteins are found throughout all eukaryotes, implying conservation across many, many years of evolution. So that function that they're doing is not important just for yeast or just for humans, but throughout all eukaryotes. So we decided in my lab to take a stab at understanding the functions of some of these uncharacterized, highly conserved mitochondrial proteins. And initially, uh, initially characterized that group in 32 protein families that we set out to just go find the functions of going one by one. And that's led us into many different areas of mitochondrial biology, some of which are shown here, along with protein functions that we've identified. And I'll focus in parts two and three of this series on two stories that emerge from this project where we, by taking, by taking an approach to try and go into the mysterious uh, features of mitochondria and take what was unknown and really try and understand the functions that those proteins have, that's led us into some very interesting areas of, of mitochondrial biology. And, and I'll tell you more about that in parts two and three. And thank you for listening.